Hello and welcome to Countrystride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today, bit of snow on the tops, it's a cold and frosty morning, Mark, and we're in wonderful Grasmere. Oh, it's a lovely place to be, isn't it? We've been here numerous times, particularly on the 100th edition, you remember that occasion where we had a cluster of lovely folk and we went to the top of the Lion and the Lamb. Yes, that was the last time we were here. And we are here today, Mark, two weeks after Country Stride Live. Wow! Did you have fun? Oh, God, yes. We committed ourselves 100% to that occasion, and we were rewarded wonderfully. Everybody had a ball. Yes, I started enjoying it at approximately 7.30pm when I had, I think it was a third pint in front of me. Um, so that's when I started enjoying it. But no, it was a great event. It's so nice to see so many people. To all those who came, thanks so much. We do hope to do it again. If you didn't, um, you can sign up on our website, www.countrystride.co.uk. Sign up to the newsletter there for first news of the dates, hopefully, for 2024's Country Stride Live. Today's podcast, Mark, has its genesis almost a year to the day today when we recorded with... Joanne Hunter. You remember Joanne? Oh yes, Grasmere Gingerbread. That was our Christmas broadcast and she said after that, there is somebody you need to record with. It was somebody who also had a connection with food and somebody who has since then gone on to do great things. Currently sitting at 23,000 Instagram followers. A remarkable achievement. Obviously a charismatic person. Charismatic person and somebody who's book has just been published fantastic book called cookout who is our guest today mark harrison ward harrison ward yeah born and bred cumbrian known to many people as the fell foodie has a fascinating story real passion for food as a child moves away and then comes back to cumbria and talks very candidly about a dark period in his life that was characterized by obesity by depression and alcoholism comes back here starts taking these photos on the fells with increasingly ambitious dishes that he's cooking it's a great story loads of our listeners will know of harrison and he's going to take us on a bit of a walk today mark oh yes he'll take us somewhere near the summit of silver Howe. i'm hoping along the way he will provide us with a feast I don't think anybody's ever cooked for us on the fell before. Is that true? No, I've got no memory of it. This man is an enigma, setting new standards for fell cuisine. Well, we have that to look forward to. So I can see Harrison over there. He's just over on the green in Grasmere. Let's go and meet Harrison and begin our steps up Silver Howe. I'm in Grasmere on the green beside Heaton Cooper Gallery and Sam Rees Bookshop. It's a chill breeze. We're in late November and I'm in the company of Harrison Ward. And it's great to see you, Harrison. Can you give the listeners a bit of a feel for your background? 
I, I can indeed, yes. Thank you for having me. Yes, so I'm, I'm Carlisle born originally, but these days in Ambleside, Grasmere is quite a special place for me, having spent sort of my first few months in the Lake Districts in this area and also working here for quite a while. These days I'm best known for cooking up some fancy restaurant-style dishes up on the mountaintops as the pseudonym fell foodie, and hopefully we're going to have a nice little dish on the tops today. Fabulous, absolutely. So where are you taking us, Harrison? So we're going to head up Silver Howe today, so one that uh, I often used to sort of run up the side of when I was here working in Grasmere for quite a while, maybe head torch on after work. A fell that really was one of the first ones that I sort of walked up at that time. So up there for a little walk, share the story and hopefully knock up a nice little Tuscan bean stew on the tops for us all to enjoy whilst we're out there. Okie dokie, well, it's a brisk morning. Let's set up a brisk pace. Well, we strolled along the village street and turned at Emmersdale up towards Allen Bank and we came through beside some Rouge Moutonne, which is always very attractive to the eye, big rocks smoothed by the ice. And there's a Herdwick sheep just passing by. We've hardly reached the fell and yet sheep are here, which is a lovely welcoming sight. Anyway, Harrison, now you were born in Carlisle. Can you remember your first impact of the landscape that surrounds the city? Yeah, well, I think it was something that I, I probably took for granted for quite a while, really. I mean, I grew up just outside Carl in Brampton, so I had the wonderful North Pennines coming to there and talking tarn near me, a nice glacial tarn. We enjoyed maybe a bit of cycling around there, playing in the woods with friends, but further south towards Keswick, Pooley Bridge sort of side, was something we just did as a bit of a day trip. I didn't really embrace the fell tops or walk as such. It was more perhaps coffee and cake in a local tea shop. We had a few camping trips to Pooley Bridge, but perhaps some of the family didn't... Uh, didn't quite embrace the full experience and actually packed up during the night and went back home to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to Brampton. So I woke up in an empty tent at one point, was quite an early memory. But I did always embrace the outdoors, did always enjoy it, but not to the same extent as what I do now, for sure. You style yourself a fell foodie. Could you tell us something about that aspect of your life? Yeah, so these days, I guess, you know, it's merging those two passions of the fells and the food side of things. But I'd always been a keen cook from quite a young age, really. I, mean, I learned to cook with my grandmother. I was the oldest of seven cousins, and you were kind of put to work, I guess. You weren't allowed to twiddle your thumbs in the lounge then. So whether it was peeling spuds or just stirring the gravy, for all the family coming around on the Sunday lunch, I generally sort of put to hand and just watched and learned what she was doing. And I loved how food really became that almost conjure it for conversation. It brought people together, sharing how their day had been. It was always seen as, for me, catching up with the families. It was always seen as quite a happy, a happy time, I guess. It really sparked a bit of a first for knowledge. So then I was watching a lot of cooking shows on the telly, whether it was Keith Floyd on Saturday Kitchen and various bits on there, and going further to reading lots of books, cookbooks and the like. And I guess then falling into hospitality at 13, washing pots in the back house of kitchens, always asking questions to see what I could learn, what I could take forwards. A real passion for different cultures, different cuisines, different ingredients. It was something that I was never taught with, just completely self-taught, but did work through hospitality for 13 years in the end before I came back to Cumbria. And then it was quite a natural sort of move for me when I started enjoying the fells. Started off taking quite extravagant packed lunches with me into the hills that would get a few comments from people that I was on the tops when I was tucking into nice risottos or panzanella salads and they'd have their soggy meal deals that had been squashed in the rucksack. And um, someone said, get a stove and start cooking there from scratch. So exactly what I did, and it's gone from there. Well, your hunger for knowledge has brought you to this spot, which is wonderful. Looking behind us, we're looking to Helm Crag. You can see Seat Sandal and the ridge up towards Alcock Tarn. My first cook was actually up at Alcock Tarn, actually on a great crag yes. up the top there. So I had a bivvy for the first time up there one day. And then my first cook, which was a nice little chicken stew, I cooked it with my friend Dan from Kendall up there. So there's a lot of memories in this area. It's 
a long time since I've been up Silver House this way. Branched off the tarmac road, there was a little sign there saying Silver House, so we bared off right and curved round past some sycamore trees and uh, came up to a farmstead. The sunlight is beaming across the fells in such an impressive way. It's not just open fell side covered in beaming sun, there's a wonderful mix of cloud shadow built into it. Harrison, you've talked about your upbringing. You ultimately moved on to university in York, and I think things changed a little for you there. I found myself going out to that city for the next step in my educational sort of career, and quickly found myself back in hospitality then. So by this point, I've been working behind the bar a lot more in Brampton at the Howard Arms. I was working in there and moved across to York quite suddenly, really. It was quite a sudden move. At this point, I was drinking quite a lot. I suppose that sort of rite of passage ingrained in the British culture, that young bloke, Wanting to put a few away as well. I mean, I was quite a heavily built chap too. So again, you wanted to be seen as a bit of a good drinker. And it was something that started to take a bit more of a precedent in my life, if you like. So my studies fell by the wayside quite quickly. And life really began to snowball to a different side. Through my teenage years, I found myself being almost hit overnight by this self-loathing, demotivation, insecurity, that I later found out to be the start of my journey with clinical depression. And I suppose in the early days, alcohol was something that was acting as a bit of a medicinal tool for me. It was silencing those thoughts, it was shutting things off, and it was a feeling that I wanted more of. It gave me that almost ethereal, drunken state, if you will, before maybe teetering off into maybe a blackout or oblivion, that was giving me that moment of how I was as a child, happy-go-lucky without those problems. It was something I wanted more and more of that became, as tolerance increased, really more of a poison for me rather than a medicine. During those York days, got to really quite heavy, dark days where I was choosing my own existence, wasn't sure I wanted to be here the next day, uh, at one point I was drinking in excess of 20 pints daily, I'd taken up smoking full-time, and I'd ballooned in weight to about 22 stone. But I was very much a highly functioning alcoholic at this point, I hadn't come to terms with that then, but my studies disappeared, I went full-time into the trade, really was just existing each day on this drunken cycle. The hospitality trade has quite a reputation for really pressurising its staff, putting them under quite a lot of stress. Do you feel that was playing into your life at that time? I think there's certainly elements of it. I think it's certainly why I stayed in that trade so long. I think it was very much kidding a sweet shop. It was sort of a, an aspect of life that you could get away with in that sort of trade. But I was also very highly functioning. I, mean, I did work up through the trade for those points. So from being a barman initially, going through to sort of duty manager, assistant manager, I had time in the kitchen when we didn't have any chefs. Then I worked up to management as well. So I was always very much highly functioning in that space. Living above as well. There are peer pressures that come with it. If it's not peers you're working with, it's people that are maybe the other side of the bar. And it can be quite a thankless task at times, but it's an industry that I've always had a lot of appreciation for growing through that, because I think you learn so much life skills-wise from it. You meet fantastic people through it from all walks of life. And really, I think it's a great, almost, life school for people to go through. So it's something that I would definitely do again for myself, but just can have those, perhaps, pitfalls when you are worked long and sociable hours. Even when you're going for a break, perhaps, I, mean, I only really took up smoking, because it was a way to get out and maybe have a break from your shift. If you weren't a smoker, it wasn't like, can I have five minutes outside? No, get back to it and get some beer soon. And I guess the drinking side of it really, again, you'd have a few drinks with the locals who were around. It was kind of after work. It just became a cycle that, that continued on. So I can quite see how people fall into those paths in that lifestyle, whether it's by association or whether it's by peer pressure or whether it's just the proximity to access as well to a point. Because for me, certainly, I think I stayed in that trade as long as I did because it was now actually aiding my lifestyle that I created. Couldn't have been in an office job, nine to five, turning up, stinking of the booze and often sort of rolling down the stairs in the morning to cook breakfast for the punters. One of those that, yeah, I can, I can see can catch some people in the wrong light, but also I think it can be a personal thing too. I don't think it's the trade that does all that side of things. Just for me, as that kind of individual with that mindset, perhaps the two didn't quite go hand in hand. But uh, a trade I've got a lot of respect for and will still do to this day. 
Well, that's intriguing. We'll continue a little further up the fell. Fascinating. We've come into a ravine as it's Colbeck, which runs down into Lower Easdale, and it's flanked by wonderful juniper bushes, prostrate, blown up to one side, but they're all very green, add a wonderful feeling of texture to this setting. And as I'm looking back, I can look back to Helm Crag, of course, and that's a wonderful setting we started off with. But I'd like to skip back with you, Harrison, back to York, where things were sort of falling apart. Absolutely, yeah, I think that's fair to say. It was kind of a, a lifestyle that I was living for what was nearly six years at that time, really, just drinking myself to oblivion each night, really trying to sedate that mindset I was having. And during this time, I found myself in a relationship at one point, and something I'd always really strive for, I guess, sort of sharing things with somebody else, different adventures and times. But we lived very different hours, of course. I was quite in social hours that we spoke of before. She was more nine to five. And, of course, I was already in this other relationship with alcohol, so two didn't really weave in together very nicely, altercations at times that would just push me further onto the drink and on these particular occasions I'd gone out and I, I acted unfaithfully to this partner and rightly so it was the, the end of that relationship but it really caused the rest of my foundation to really began to crumble and fall apart. It was the 6th of June 2016 and it was really the day that I came to terms with the fact that I was an alcoholic. I felt very powerless to this substance, it was really controlling who I was, I felt it could compromise my internal morals really I, I saw myself as quite a loyal honest person and never want to be a burden to anybody else that's why I never shared what I was going through I didn't want to bring somebody else down with our problems yet exactly what I was doing now was causing these relationships to break down around me I had a major breakdown at that point really I, I went to work the next day on the 7th of June and did the breakfast shift and my boss came to me and said you don't seem quite right today and I just completely broke down in floods of tears in front of me and he said go take a minute outside and take a time to yourself I stayed out there for about maybe six hours or so until my colleague actually came to take over the, the afternoon shift and he came straight out of a pint glass and said, yeah, you know, get this down, yeah, this will sort you out. And I said, I, just, I don't drink anymore, John. I just looked at him and said, I don't drink anymore. And he said, you what? I said, I don't, I don't drink anymore. And literally it was an overnight thing. I'd gone from that really high levels of consumption, the control of my life, to really feeling the person I'd built up and who I was was not the character I believed I truly was. Almost overnight, I felt like I had to leave this city. I'd been there for seven years, made a lot of friends, but overnight I left Upsticks and came back to Cumbria, originally back to Brampton, where my mum is still based, and came clean to friends and family about what I've been going through, really. The mental state I was in, the depression I've been suffering from, from school years, the subsequent alcoholism because of that, and just trying to really throw myself into fitness as a means of trying to recover from this and trying to right my wrongs, in a way. It was a very sudden moment from obviously losing my girlfriend to leaving my flat, losing my job, Everything I'd built up for so many years, now gone, but back home in the Lakeland Turf. Your mum and your family and friends back home, what was their reaction? I think there was a lot of shock. I think it was very much just like something overnight had just collapsed. I was known as a heavy drinker, but it was kind of something that was brushed off maybe as a sort of young lad, puts a few away, perhaps drinks a bit too much. It was something that really, from that moment of putting my hands up, you know, the support that I got back from friends and family then is something I'll never forget. And it's the reason I'm really here talking to you today. They gathered round, one by one, they turned up on my doorstep back at the family home. I threw myself into fitness to try and fill that void. I was getting my old bike back out the shed and doing the loop round, Walton and Lanacost and back away to then going back to the gym. And then one particular friend turned up and said, go on, let's go for a hike in the lakes. Well, that iconic, life-changing walk We'll talk about when we find a nice little borough spot to make our first endeavours cooking.
Well, we've managed to come down into a little ravine, hence the noise of the back, very imminent, because we're right beside the back, underneath a, a holly bush, quite a substantial one, and I can look down through the ravine down to the village of Grasmere, of course. Harrison has set out his uh, utensils, ready to make a start. He'll be putting the burner on in a minute, I'm sure. Perhaps you could tell us first what the kit is and then magically what you're preparing. Yeah, so here we've got uh, basically a tripod canister stove with a uh, camping pan on the top. I've got a few food flasks I've packed things into, so I've got some of the ingredients, various spices and oils I've brought out with me as well. Seasonings in there, nice screw top lids. Little chopping board, little knife as well to bring this together. I'm going to knock up a little Tuscan bean stew. So we've got some really smoky, sweet roasted peppers through there. We've got uh, the tomato, some flatbreads on the side, and some nice little smooth butter beans through this as well. So we'll bring it all together with some onions and some garlic and get this all uh, started in cooking. Now, whilst you're busy cutting the onions, could you tell us a little bit about that life-changing walk-up? I think it was Brencafra. It was, it was Blencaffer indeed, yeah. So my, my close friend Ryan turned up on my doorstep and uh, he said we're going to go for a hike and I really knew nothing what to expect at the time. We talked before that I spent a little bit of time in the Lake District but largely uh, coffee and cake and maybe some of the boats in Keswick really. So to go hiking for the first time, I just put on what I had to hand which was an old pair of scabby swim shorts, a jump rod wear down the pub on a Friday, trainers that probably had as much grip as a pair of bowling shoes in honesty. And, uh, he took one look at me and said, yeah, you can't go like that, look at the state of you. And we drove into the, into the Lake District, and on the way there, he pulled up with this outdoor store, grabbed these boots off the shelf and put them on the counter, and bought me these boots, which was a huge show of faith at the time, really. I mean, I was completely penniless. I'd racked up all this debt in York, blown from my credit cards, all down my neck, really, all this money. And about 20 minutes later, he pulls up at the base of Blencafra. I'm looking up at this hill going, what have I got myself in for here? <laughs> And then this is literally two weeks from that moment of change. You know, literally, I've not done any exercise for six years. Just come off cigarettes. I just stopped smoking. I'm pining for my ex-partner. And all of a sudden, I'm about to get frog-marched up this mountainside. And it wasn't really a, a gentle start. It wasn't a latrig or a, a castle crag. It was straight into a... <laughs> Allsfell Ridge, it was, up the side there. Absolutely. So literally staring at my feet. I mean, God knows how long it took me at the time. One foot in front of the other, just plodding on forwards, blowing out my proverbial, really, walking up that fell side. And uh, hours and hours later, I think, getting to the top of that summit, seeing that summit circle on the top, and my friend turns to me and said, right, we're doing Helvellyn next week. And this was really the start of it. It was kind of very much that baptism of fire. A week later, it was a beautiful June day, the same sort of story from the base of Helvellyn, from the Philomere side, that stone staircase to the summit, feeling like it was a bit of a, a physical manifestation, really, of what I was going through. Uphill struggle, you know, pushing on through the pain, not really knowing what was to come next. But slowly on, pushing on to that summit top and seeing Stride and Edge coming out there, red time below, the Pennines in the distance. And it was really like a new addiction was being sparked in me, like a new love. That endorphin hit, that dopamine, that sense of achievement of being on these fell tops without any of that negative that perhaps alcohol was giving me beforehand. Whilst it was quite a baptism of fire, it was one that certainly ignited this new passion. In those early days of June 2016, here we are still enjoying the fells, but now bringing the pots and pans with me as well, <laughs> quite randomly, but a lovely little spot we found here. And get this uh, bean stew cooking, hopefully get some nice, uh, nice food on the go, Mark. You've got a new addiction. It's fell walking, fabulous. Now, where did the food element come into this? 
At the start of this journey, of course, I was grossly overweight and I was looking at my health in all various aspects. I was also looking at how I was feeling myself. So I was trying to go back to cooking from fresh. Despite having that love of cooking, perhaps in the darker years, I was more likely to be falling and be in a kebab shop on the way home or picking a few chips out of the pub when you had a chance. So food played quite a key part from the start. Again, how I was feeling myself. I couldn't expect a car to go 100 miles on a bad fuel source. So I was trying to cook again a lot from scratch, using fresh ingredients where possible. And when I got into the hiking side of things, I began really just taking packed lunches with me that I'd made the night before. So quite extravagant lunches I'd made up, just in a bit of Tupperware to enjoy on the fell tops. Someone said, why didn't I get a stove and start cooking there from scratch? So exactly what I did, I bought that stove and started trying to recreate what I was doing at home, but now in these wonderful remote locations, really taking in that food and those vistas. At first it was going maybe at Lufferigny, where I live now in Ambleside, up the tops there. I did a nice Cumberland sausage dish with some mash and gravy out there. I did a nice sort of poached egg, bacon, red onion marmalade on toasted bagels. So now maybe knocking up all sorts of curries and stews and risottos all on the fell tops. And it's a wonderful accompaniment to this setting. Well, it always seems to be the first thing that people sacrifice I think, when they go out there. They just get a few snack bars or they get pot noodle from the shops maybe or just a sandwich from the supermarket. And for me, it was something that I never liked that fast food culture when I'm down at the lower level, so why would I do that when I'm up the top? So it was just a nice thing to bring together, sort of food in the outdoors, taking it really back to almost its ancestral past where we cooked on fire, but now maybe using a camping stove, always leaving no trace, bringing everything back down with me and uh, enjoying the nice food to uh, keep us fueled on the fells. When people have uh, encountered you when you're in, with your outdoor kitchen, as it were, with that chopping board and the burner with the pan, uh, what have people said? You do get some funny looks, that's for sure, I think, when you're out there and crafting your dinner and they've got the sandwich out the bag. And... But also, I think there's often asking for maybe a seat at the table as well, asking for a reservation for a bit later on. But uh, <laughs> it's only a small burner. I can't cook for too many. Often jealous onlookers about people that maybe uh, will want to come with me next time. Inundated offers to go hiking with me, Mark, but less so to help carry the bag. <laughs> Okay, so starting with the garlic there as well, so some onions in the pan with a bit of oil. So we're using an oil with quite a high smoke point in there as well, just because it's quite a, a fierce burner on these tops. Because we're always trying to contend with the elements when we're out cooking and about as well. I don't want the hobs at home where you've got a nice sheltered spot to be in there. So nice vigorous burner with a lightweight pan. Onion, garlic, we'll go with some roasted peppers, some tomato puree and tomatoes and start building this stew together with some nice butter beans. And then we're ready to serve, it's quite a quick one to knock up really. Now you've attracted a lot of attention and you've uh, cooked with some interesting people. I believe Mary Berry enjoyed a piece with you. Yeah, so it was quite a random call out the blue really with Mary Berry. It was one of those that you did wonder how she got your number at first. Um, <laughs> the first things I said was I'm not baking her a cake, that's for sure, on the hillside. I had a little girl making a cake on my camping stove by myself by the shores of Windermere and uh, it, it went quite well. So I posted it on my Instagram page and the, uh, the television producer saw it. So on the day, there I am, meeting the institution that is Dame Mary Berry and attempting to bake her a cake on my camping stove. Talk about pressure. <laughs> but she was amazing. I mean, just what you expect. She was absolutely lovely company. We had a great day on the hills. We were looking over to Blencafra. Again, that hill that started it all. Cooking away from it. A nice sea bass dish, broad beans and pancetta. And then baked a lemon and blueberry cake on my camping stove using this little convection oven bit of equipment that sits on top of the stove. And I believe the first time she's had a cake in the outdoors before. She was doubting it as well at one point. All the crew didn't think it was going to work. But I turned this cake out and Mary said the line, I'll never forget, no sign of a soggy bottom here. <laughs> For you, it was a piece of cake.
while I'm blowed. All three of us have got something to eat in a pan. I can't believe my eyes. I've got enough food here for Christmas. I've got beans in uh, tomato. Absolutely amazing. I think I'll uh, have a little bit of a bite here. Oh my goodness me. In this setting, having something like this is outrageous. To many people, I suppose it might seem somewhat eccentric to be eating out on a meal just prepared on the fair like this. That is not lost on me, perhaps, that ridiculous nature of maybe carting your pots and pans to the top of the hill to cook a dish to walk down again sometimes. But I think, well, why not at times as well? It's kind of a nice little thing to do in itself, to go and enjoy a sunset. I love that food as well, to enjoy it in those great spaces. It's just a beautiful thing with other people, really. I think sometimes it can be seen as perhaps slightly pointless or the practicality of it with the weight side of things, but with a little group out there, if you're sharing the load slightly, walking up, it's always a memorable experience. Again, it's something that we slow down a bit as well, because... So often in life, we're rushing around, we're really busy, we're just rushing to the next place for work or for play, or always got to be in places. And even in the hills, I find that I race to the top of the mountain sometimes, I want to be there and head down again. But being quite still, getting these bits out, crafting a bit of lunch in the outdoors, even if it is a flask or a food flask, something you made the night before, just reheating it in the outdoors, food just always tastes better in that environment. And it's just a nice little nod, Victorian traditions are even further back when it was perhaps more campfires and foraging. It's very convivial. There is something about that social element. Well, like I said at the start, I think food for me was always akin with that togetherness. So these days, perhaps you're just swapping that kitchen table for maybe the camp stove in the fell side. But even just sharing conversation whilst it's bubbling away on the pot, it didn't really take that long to bring together that dish, really. It was quite quick. There's something about food and being that conduit for conversation, sharing tales from, from both our years, both our knowledge and both our experiences in this in this wonderful environment. Why not have this nice little spot here again by this running beck? We're having great conversations, great chat. The weather's holding out nicely for us as well. And we've enjoyed a nice lunch, full bellies to uh, fuel us on for the next steps. Well, we've had our wonderful lunch. We've left Ray Gill behind. Uh, we're just coming up onto the fell. We've got a lovely view back uh, towards Seat Sandal and uh, towards uh, Steel Fell. Quite a strong breeze. The cloud is swirling around quite high up, thank goodness. I can just see a hint of snow, but only a little smidgen up towards Helvellyn. Now we've had the meal, we've had our refreshment. Um, I'm rather intrigued to know how the fell foodie thing started. I got a feeling it was to do with the Instagram account that you set up. You were encouraged to develop your idea there, but how has that flourished? There really wasn't a plan behind it all really. It was something that, first my colleague Yasmin, um, who's working at Grassmere Gingerbread, I used to take pictures of my dinner quite often at home. I used to love my cookie and I'd take photos of it while I was doing and didn't share them anywhere. I'd just say, oh, I made this last night, this is what I was doing. And she said to me one day, you know, you should start an Instagram account and start sharing this on there. And I was going, oh, no, I don't want to bother people with that. I don't want one of those people that takes photos of my dinner and shares it online. But then I decided to do exactly that. So I came up with the pseudonym of Fell Foodie because it was merging those two passions for me. So I'm loving the fells, being out there, a bit of a nod to maybe my Cumbrian history as well and being from the area, and also my love of food. Well, at first, it was just literally showcasing the adventures I was going on and the food I was cooking then at home. And as time went on again, I began taking those packed lunches with me into the hills, as I mentioned before. I began getting that stove and started cooking on the hilltops. And there was something, I think, about seeing that plate of food and these wonderful views. Many people love being out in these environments, and many people love 
find food. But seeing the two go hand in hand was kind of a bit of a, a bizarre amalgamation of a photograph, really. So it got a bit of interest from there. And then around my second year sober in 2018, I decided to share my, my story on there in its entirety. And when you say story there, you, you're taking us back to York. Yeah, absolutely. And all through my puberty years as well, that's what the start of that clinical depression with the subsequent alcoholism coming on from there. And really it was something that I just shared in its entirety, completely raw and honestly, now online on a public platform. The response I got, like those friends and family back at the start, the response again was just really humbling. And the fact that people had found the hills for similar reasons, discovered it for their own mental health or physical health or other people they've had in their lives that have maybe found such beauty in this environment that I was blessed and lucky to be from. It just chimed with a few people, and that really led on from there to a few opportunities further afield, a few media opportunities, and just sparked the growth of this channel under the pseudonym of Fell Foodie. And then, uh, of course, I'd revealed that it was all me behind all this. So it's kind of really nothing other than a hobby, nothing other than me showcasing my passions and the path I was going on. A bit like an online journal, in a way, of what I was going through for those darker days and trying to rebuild my life. And I can see how people connected with you because they understood your mental well-being and landscape relationship that you were expressing. I guess so. I mean, for me, it was just somewhere that I was finding a lot of solace being in these environments and just sharing that quite openly and honestly now to a public account. It wasn't anything new. I wasn't sharing a new knowledge or a new path or creating a new path. It was just something that I was speaking out about slightly in an area that I was from and I think being back in an environment that felt very human. It felt somewhere that there was a deep connection to. It just felt very natural, rather than maybe the sort of the city lifestyle that I've never really been akin to. Being in these natural beauty environments, almost putting your problems into perspective as well, of the insignificance that you can feel when you're out in these vast environments. And having that endorphin hit from fitness and activity in the outdoors too, of getting the heart beating, there was just no better place for it. <laughs> Do you know, Harris, I stand here frozen and I've got gloves on and a hat on and you're wearing shorts. How do you cope? <laughs> There's a window, I think, where the trousers maybe come out. When it really the snow comes down, it does drop. But otherwise, I like the freedom of movement in the shorts. And perhaps with these legs these size, it's difficult to get trousers that fit sometimes as well. <laughs> <laughs> you've given up the pints, but you've got your shorts. <laughs> There's a quote for the bookmark, definitely. <laughs> oh, dear, me, dear. We are drawing close towards Silver Howe. We're best getting a march on because we're running out of daylight, aren't we? <laughs> we are. <laughs> Gosh, we've made it to the top. We've uh, got the view. There's a quite a lot of cloud, but you can definitely see Seat Sandal and Grisdale Hawes. Fairfield is lost in cloud, but you just see uh, Great Rig, Heron Pike, Nabscar. Snarker Pike overtopping that in the distance. And round to Wandsfield Pike and of course below us, Grasmere Lake and Rydal Water. And uh, beyond Luffrig Fell you can see Windermere, Luffrig Tarn, Black Crag behind it. And in the far off distance, Gummers Howe. The Coniston Fells, well of course they're lost in cloud, so you can't really distinguish much. But Lingmore Fells in the foreground, you can see the lower slopes of Harrison Stickle and the ridge heading west from where we're standing over Langhowe towards Great Castle Crag and uh, Sergeant Man. Beyond that, Codale Head is lost, but you can definitely see Tarn Crag, 
Then there's a mantle of cloud over Ullscarf. Steel fell is very visible. It's actually got sunlight on it. Harrison, you have a particular memory of being on this summit at a new year. What was special about it? I have come up here quite a few occasions to enjoy the fireworks below in Grasmere because there was a time where the hotels would almost compete against each other with the firework displays on New Year's Eve. So I'd make the night hike up here. Of course, I wasn't much of a drinker these days, so I'd sort of do something else on New Year's Eve, a different activity. And of course, walking up in the night, head torch led, all my warm clothing on, coming to the top of this fell and looking down into the valley and watching the spectacle below of these fireworks exploding. It's always bizarre how little they come up. You always expect them to come to your eye level or beyond still, but when you're this high up, you're looking down on the firework and explosions below and all the colours that appear across the lakeside. And of course, you can see almost the reflections from Windermere and even further away, Kendall, perhaps even Morecambe, of the fireworks going off there as well on the clear day. So it's been a really wonderful, quite unique way to spend New Year that I've shared with many people on different occasions. But uh, perhaps I'll see some other people here next year now I've told the story. <laughs> I, I gather you've been doing the way, right? You're quite well advanced in that process. Yeah, I'm nearly there now, to be fair. I'm 193 I'm on now, the 214, so I'm nearly there. No excuses really living so close, I think. The ones closest to home I probably did first. These central fells were ticked off quite a while ago. Uh, it's mainly more sort of the far eastern I haven't done now, but the furthest ones to get to for me. But uh, but I keep going back to these ones as old favourites. I'm not really a slave to the list. I don't look forward to doing ones I need to do to tick off. I tend to love going back to ones I've already been before with different people, different experiences, sometimes different meals cooked as well. And as you say, different seasons offer different beauty every time. So certainly Harrison Stickle perhaps is one I should have left till last, but I did do that quite early on in my uh, way in my ticket. So have you left the great end for your great end? <laughs> I'm actually planning on Gable being my last one. Great Gable. I've still right. not done Gable. So if you get to Great Gable, and of course you will, you'll obviously prepare a meal. What would it be? Uh, I have thought about it. I mean, in, in a way, I'm kind of looking forward to perhaps even going up there, perhaps even by myself this time, and just sitting atop and just sort of almost reflecting on the last years. Because again, a lot of this has been really unexpected. I didn't really aim to be at this path. There were times in my life that really I didn't expect to see see this far, really. So it's, it's almost a full look back on the whole journey as a whole. I perhaps may cook as well, but I may just go on the tops and just reflect on the view and the journey so far whilst being there. Anyway, I need to get on and do them, really. I did say before my 30th, but I'm 33 now. <laughs> so I'm not finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've got many more happy years on the fell. I'm twice your age, and I'm looking forward to more fells myself. Well, they're not going anywhere just yet, are they? Well, I think we ought to escape the breeze because it's quite biting, and we'll do a little bit of reflection. Well, that's lovely. We cut down a little defile with beautiful pitching, which is a great asset in that bit. That's a bit of work that's been done in the last 10 years. We've come down to a wall, which is a beautifully constructed wall and overlooks Grasmere Lake. It's quite a, a lee underneath, quite a steep scree slope of Silverhow. It's a moment here to pause us in the shelter to reflect on one great recent event in your life, Harrison, the publication of Cookout. Can you just talk to us about the book? Yeah, it's been quite a nice moment to have this published. Again, something I didn't really think could ever come true. A bit of a childhood dream coming to fruition, really, having a cookbook of my own 
on the shelves, of course, with my quirky twists. So it's all uh, recipes to cook out and about. So it's recipes that are tied in with adventure, tying food and your time in the outdoors. So ideal for people who are going camping, camper vanners, those who maybe are more adventurous, wanting to go for a hike, cook on the tops. Perhaps even those who are down for a little while swimming in the lakes or going bouldering in perhaps some of these wonderful spots around here as well. So just recipes that are all designed around cooking on a camping stove. Breakfast dishes, to sort of one-pot meals desserts in there as well as well as snacks you can make at home first to take out with you into the outdoors so i appreciate not everyone's going to take a camp stove out with them into the mountains even perhaps after listening to this yeah. there's 85 recipes all in all hopefully something for everyone plenty of vegan dishes vegetarian dishes generally just really really proud to see it out there on the shelves and had some wonderful support from likes of yourselves also local bookstores and seeing it nationwide as well so just a bit of a bizarre moment seeing your own book i guess on a on a shelf somewhere have you got any particular recipes in there that stand out well, now we're asking, aren't we? I mean, I'd say all 85 are my favourite. That's why I've chosen to go in the book. <laughs> well, the Tuscan bean stew we've enjoyed today is in the one-pot section. It also makes the cover of the book as well. So, again, I'll put that one in there too. It's one of my go-tos that I often make at home or on the fell side. Pancakes I tend to go to quite often. Nice American-style pancake recipe in there. That I cooked up on Clough Head in the snow. One of the most beautiful photos in the book, I think, is the shot of those pancakes on the dish being out there. You can make that mix up first, pack it into a little flask and have that ready to pour straight into a pan either the next morning or perhaps in the afternoon for a little snack. No sort of eggs breaking in your backpack. So there's two. And perhaps if we go for something a bit trickier, I wouldn't say it's my favourite dish, but it's certainly the most complicated dish in the book is there's the katsu curry in there that I've done. I've done an aubergine katsu rather than a chicken, but you could do that. All the elements of it, perhaps, I mean, the rice is cooked on there, I've made the sauce out on the hillside, I'm breading and sort of shallow frying the bits of aubergine, and even sort of ribboning and slightly sort of pickling the carrot and cucumber bits on there to make it all look really nice and dainty sort of presentation on the dish as well. And I actually cooked that one on Silverhow once as well. I cooked there with a, a, a girl called Kate Appleby, a friend of mine based in Windermere, where we cooked up on the hill after a walk once, looking over Grasmere, and it was a particularly biting wind day like today, <laughs> cooking that up, and you were sitting there thinking, what is the point in this, really, as it was slowly cooking away, but eventually completing that dish, and it was a certainly delicious one to eat up afterwards. Of all the meals you've made in the outdoors, is the one occasion and setting that really stands out? You're asking the tough ones for me now, Mark, definitely so. It's one of those that I think sometimes people often ask what your favourite fell is, what your favourite meal is on the tops, and often it boils down to really the experience of the day, I think the company I've had on the time or what I've seen. Fleet with Pike is always a favourite of mine, heading that sort of way, cooking on the tops there. I've had quite a few different cooks on the top there from making a nice steak dish on the tops. So I did a nice puttanesca pasta out there, the caprese salad once. So I've had times out in the boffies there as well, sort of Dubs Hut and one scale out there too. So a spot I will go back to on multiple occasions. I think it's fantastic for the sunset looking across. As for one particular meal, tough to put it down to one. Will there be any butter, mere in there? <laughs> <laughs> There's been butter me on occasion, yes. I haven't quite baked a cake on a, on Bakestall yet, though. <laughs> That's a lovely little plod down there. It's very heavily used, that part, but... Most of it's on hard rock, beside a really handsome wall covered in moss, of course, beautiful capping stones, ring garth, I would call it. It really looks handsome. Anyway, we come down just short of uh, a kissing gate, and it's a, a moment to reflect on the fells and your life on the fells. You've got seven years sober now, and your relationship with the fells has become ever more important to your life. They've been very instrumental in this whole turnaround. I mean, from being from someone that was literally picking themselves up 
out of the proverbial ditch, if you will, just sort of trying to get clean from alcohol, smoking, so finding sort of fitness and really my own mental well-being again. So they gave me all that for a start. As time's gone on, they've given me a lot of peers and contacts and acquaintances in the space too, who I've met through a similar love or a similar passion, some of which are very close friends to this day. I suppose even now they've also forged a bit of a, an attempted career, I suppose, at the moment as well. So but it's given me so much, really, and I just can't, can't really reflect on how far I've come. And really a blink, I mean, from being behind the co-op in Grasmere seven years ago to now sort of being in Ambleside and chatting to yourself on the hillside here under this guise of this, this pseudonym with my debut book. I mean, it's really a journey that I just couldn't have, couldn't have guessed or couldn't have forged if I tried. Now it's uh, that magical moment. Quick fire questions. Have you a particular favourite view? I quite like the one from my bedroom window currently, which is nice, looking over Wandsfell, over Ambleside, with my skylights, it's quite nice. I enjoy that one most mornings, or sometimes maybe late mornings. But whenever we're blessed with a view in these northern parts, it's special, because quite often you can be on those fell tops and you get absolutely nailed. <laughs> uh, have you a particularly memorable walk you'd like to share with listeners? I always love going back to Weasdale Tarn. I know we've mentioned it quite a bit, sort of walking up here, not being too far away from it, but... That was one that, again, I started off plodding away after work when I was living in Grasmere. And again, I've always enjoyed heading up to the Tarn and gills you pass on the way up. I mean, sour milk gill for a start's fantastic. I've had a couple of dips in there in my time as well, heading to the tops. It's one that I often take people on, perhaps, if it comes to the lakes for the first time that maybe aren't too used to the severe fell walks, perhaps, shall we say. So East Old Tarn's one I like as a little plod to head out there. But again, some gorgeous ones near my neck of the woods too, outside of Lake Lille, I guess. Around Talking Town, around that sort of space, or Gelt Woods. Some beautiful routes in this county. We're just blessed with you. Yeah, well, that's my backyard as well. Uh, when you're on a long walk, where does your mind wander? I think it's the opposite for me, I think. My mind wanders a lot more when I'm not on the hilltops. And I think for me, it's the silence that I get sort of mentally and sort of cerebrally. I think that really is why I love being out there. It kind of shuts away those menial stresses of life, I think, being in the environment. So, if anything, it's the opposite for me. My mind calms down, it slows, and I just feel really like I'm in the place I'm meant to be. Which season of the year is your favourite in Lakeland? Well, it is a bit like the favourite recipe one, isn't it? They're all, they've all got their own qualities. I mean, I, I do particularly like this sort of this transition point from autumn into winter, I think, when the colours really start coming out onto the fell tops. gets a little bit cooler out there, more sort of ambient temperature to go walking in. And if we are blessed with a bit of snow and ice on the caps as well, then... I do enjoy being out on those brisk bits too. You appreciate coming back to the warmth a lot more, I think, when you've been out in those environments, when you, your nose is all red and you feel like your lips are a bit chapped and you come back to that way. But the stove often stays at home a lot more when the snow's on the fells. <laughs> As Cumbrians would say, this is the back end. Is there a moment in Cumbrian history that we would like to be uh, a part to? There's so much history in this area, isn't there, from maybe Dunmill, where he actually put his crown, perhaps, where, where King Dunmill left his crown. We worked that one out, and I'll go diving in and find it. Is it really in Grisdale Tarn? Who yeah. knows? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see Longbeg and her daughters as an actual ritual site in action. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Have you a favourite Lakeland pub? Well, I could probably answer plenty more in the past of this one, Mark, than these days. I don't tend to frequent too many these days, but I do enjoy a nice, sort of, you know, a nice roast on a Sunday, maybe with a nice warm fire, especially when the leaves are crisp under your boots when you're out and about. But again, maybe sort of the Codel Inn, I really like sort of the delicious dishes out there. Dog and Gun at Skelton, I've enjoyed going in the past. But of course, there's quite a few in my neck of the woods that I've frequented, both as a punter and also as a worker in there, from the Blacksmith Arms in Talking, that we mentioned before at the Hi, start. Yeah. My, the first pub I worked in at 13, to the Crown Hotel in Weatherall, to the Howard Arms in Brampton. And I did used to love being in the pub, the social side, and it was an environment that I was, I was sad to leave, obviously, for different reasons for myself. I think when it becomes the living room and the, really the common room and everyone cuts together and sharing those stories, it really is a fine tradition that I do hope does stay alive because there's been so many difficult times for the pub traders as of late, and it's one that done right 
and have a good ale fire or a nice dinner, it's a special place to be. Absolutely. I remember Melvin commenting about his upbringing in a pub in Wigton and how important it was, the social element of it. Have you a favourite Lakeland food? I'm probably going to conform to the stereotype here and go for the old sausage, probably. I mean, the Cumberland sausage, I think, in a nice coil is always the, uh, is always the way for me. But I always like to see when I go back to sort of my, my bit, see my mum, and there's always a little brochure on the side there of a free offer of some Cumberland sausage if you head down to the local butchers. And I'm often sharp out the door and making sure I've got a nice piece out there, roasted up with some nice sort of uh, onion chutneys and some Cumberland mustard as well. I always enjoy on there too. Always loving that from Alston neck of the woods. Whole mustard seed, again, like the whole grain option, but also a lovely honey one they do as well, which is delicious. So, again, nice bit of Cumberland sausage, a bit of Cumberland mustard. Now better. But I've tried to allude to one in my book as well. I've done a little bit of a Cumbrian cassoulet in there, which is my nod to sort of the area. So, again, there's plenty of lamb cutlets in there from the Herdwick origins with the Cumberland mustard in there. Adding through the beans that you generally find in a cassoulet as well, but trying to weave in those stories of the spices and the nature of Cumberland as well. We're a great county, aren't we? If you were Prime Minister for just one day, is there one thing you would do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria? Um, I think I'd shut down the Walker's factory and make sure Cheese Excel becomes the National Crisp. <laughs> <laughs> what is the unique magic of Lakeland? I think it's got to be the people, hasn't it? It's got to be the people. Again, as you, as you feature so much on this podcast as well, the stories that weave in, the history, the artisanal nature of some of the crafts that are still surviving in this area. And I think... It's often joked in Cumbria, isn't it, how we're a bit behind the times sometimes, you know, we just heard the war ended, that sort of stuff. But in a way, that's kind of its magic, I think, the fact it doesn't always conform to the ways of the world in a way. And it kind of is somewhere you can escape and things just get back into their place. And there's so much more to life than sometimes the modernities that we, we get used to. And you see when people come up here sometimes, they're looking out for the takeaway options or someone to deliver to the door within a couple of hours. And yet over here, it's like, we don't do it that way. You know, it's a slow life almost, and it's a slow life for good reason. Uh, When the time comes and a few friends gather to remember you in a place that means something special to you, where in Lakeland might that be? Should I take this as a threat? For so long in my life, I suppose, I contemplated that day regularly in terms of what was going to be my last, but I think by the time I reach that point now on this new path, I mean, I, I wouldn't largely be that bothered where I end up, really. I mean, if <laughs> you just be into the rubbish, it'll be fine. As long as it was Cumbria, I'd be happy. That's brilliant. Well, Harrison Ward, your company has been really much appreciated. Thank you very much. Journey's end. Night's kind of creeping in over the fells, Mark. It's been quite nice, actually, hasn't it? It hasn't rained. It's been no. blimmin' cold. I tell you what, on the top there, very windy, bitingly cold. But I had a great day, and well, that was a fantastic meal. Well, there's rooks flying around here, but we saw a, a peregrine up there, didn't we? We did, yeah. Uh, hovering very close to us. This is the magic of the fells, but the real magic today was provided by Harrison himself, and something unique, an actual meal prepared tidily, tastily, and cleared away perfectly, so nobody would know we'd ever been there. Did you enjoy it? Oh, gosh, yes. He's a top chef. I thought one of the really interesting things, actually, that he picked up on, and I'd not really given it much thought until that point, but I'm definitely within that group of people who speeds up fells, takes a photo at the top, and down I come. I've known for a long time that I don't really spend enough time just sitting still, 
engaging with the landscape. I think that's true of an awful lot of people who would say they love the fells, but I'm not sure if we necessarily slow down and really engage with the moment. And he made that point, didn't he? That it almost gives you an excuse, yes. right? To just stop, breathe it all in, and sure, have a really great meal. Because that's another really quite an odd thing is, I've got quite a few friends who love the fells and who really care about their body and about their food that they put into it. But you go on the fells and you just buy a load of garbage and up you go. And that is true, isn't it? It's yeah. a really strange disconnect. And if you're doing it with friends or getting a group of people together to eat a meal in the fell, everybody is in a different mindset. And that's what Harrison is achieving here, setting new mindsets for being on the fell. OK, well, we'll wrap up for today. This is episode number... 114. For 113 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. If you'd like to support us, the best way, either buy one of our many guidebooks, you can find them on the same website address, or even better, become one of our patrons. And as ever, we'll say thanks to our select band who keep this ship rolling through the Cumbrian waves... Uh, Thanks so much. Your support means a lot and keeps us fed and watered. For today, the dusk falling on lovely Grasmere. Christmas decorations out here. Just getting ready for the Christmas season. We're saying goodbye for now and see you on next fortnight's Country Strive.